So let me ask you, have you ever had a neighbor that for whatever reason you don't talk to, you never hang out with, you get a real what's he building in there vibe from him. Somehow though, they always have this banger caddy or a Rolls Royce parked out in front of the house. They always seem to be bringing home women, even though the house reeks. It's like hoarders meets meat processing plant in the middle of summer with just that hint of dying, nasty rot smell. Well, would you be at all surprised if you walked into that house, went down to the basement, and there was a pit dug in the floor? Like a giant, deep pit. If you would, well, maybe don't walk into your neighbor's house without an invitation. Like, are you a realtor? I didn't think so. And if you are, well, still, maybe get the invitation. And if you didn't walk in there, you might not have ended up in Gary Heidnick's cellar of horror. Lifestyle of the Sick and the Awful. Welcome to the Lifestyles of the Sick and the Awful, where together we're going to take a look at the people that have had an effect on society and changed how we all look at the world around us on a micro and macro level. Today, we're talking about Gary Heidnick who in 1987 was arrested for the false imprisonment, kidnapping, rape, torture, and murder of several women in his Philadelphia home. Gary Heidnick was born in Eastlake, Ohio in 1943. His parents, Michael and Ellen, were loving, nurturing people. So excited that they were having a baby boy that Michael started writing out ideas in a My Little Pony spiral notebook of all the ways he was going to teach little Gary how to be a kind and caring person. You know, like constantly belittling him for his bedwetting and making him hang the bed's wet sheets out the window for all the neighborhood kids to see, like a big piss-covered flag. Ellen, meanwhile, was so delighted to be a mom that she decided to crawl inside a bottle of the cheapest gin she could find and just spend her life so blotto she didn't have to deal with any of it. Michael and Ellen eventually had another son. And in showing the absolute super scion level of creativity and joy children brought to their lives, Name this one Terry, because why the hell not? You already have a name that works, just roll with it. Gary, Terry, you can go with Mary, Barry, Jerry, (laughs) you get the gist. If I have to explain the joke, well, I'm probably bad at jokes, so I'm sorry. When Larry, uh, shit, I mean Gary, see now I'm confused. When Gary was roughly three years old, Michael and Ellen's storybook romance of a marriage came to an end in a spectacular fashion. In a bitter divorce, Michael accused Ellen of severe alcoholism, which, yeah, and Ellen counterclaimed abuse and sexual dissatisfaction, which, I mean, probably. I have to assume Mr. Makes His Son Wave the Piss Flag to the Neighborhood wasn't exactly a caring and compassionate lover. However, I would have to question how Ellen would know any of this, considering she was basically a sentient gin-soaked raisin. I mean... She was, by all reporting, a massive drunk, a lush, deep in her cups, a staggering, unrepentant, sloshy booze hound. Anyway, after the divorce, little Gary and Terry stayed with their dad, probably because he had a job and knew where the hell he was, not yakking up vodka and full olives into the garden. Michael, though, according to Gary and Terry, was not exactly the cardigan tea-sipping kind of dad. He was more of the, stop being a fucking baby before I get the belt, you worthless little shit, kind of dad. Um, you know, normal 1950s dad from everything I've heard. I don't know. 
I was born the same year the classic Nintendo MTV and Microsoft Windows 1.0 debuted, so take that for what it's worth. <laughs> well, at some point a couple of years later, little Terry and Gary went to stay with their mom. I'm guessing she must have been on a tolerance break during this point. It's good to dry out. It saves you money in the long run. Ellen's house had this big, beautiful yard for the boys to play in. It was here, though, that Gary had an experience that changed his entire life. He heard the song, yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy, one too many times, and vowed to make everyone around him suffer. Oh, no, my mistake. Actually, he fell from a tree about 20 feet down and smashed his head so hard it was misshapen. So that's fun. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Mama was in her cups when this happened, because everything you read about Ellen Heidnick, it comes back to her being a massive drunk. And when your son goes on to do what he does later in life and all they write about you is your drinking habits, I would have to guess that your blood alcohol level is probably a Smirnoff vodka label. Anyway, it was such a noticeable head shape adjustment that Gary picked up that he got the name Football Head. This nickname paired so nicely for the bedwetting awkward Gary. Bedwetting is a problem about 15% of kids deal with. It's usually an issue that works itself out. Michael's technique of making his son display the pissy sheets to the neighborhood? Probably not the best way to go about it. I'm not saying I know for sure. I'm not exactly what you would call an expert. I haven't lost my kid to a pack of wild dogs so far. I think I'm doing okay, but I mean, we'll have to see. She's sick, so we'll find out later down the road. Even with all that going against little Gary... The bedwetting, the abusive dad, the drunk mom, a pretty severe head injury. Gary wasn't exactly stupid. When he was tested, he was found to have an IQ of 148. To put that to perspective, that's about 30 points above the high end of the national average and 8 points into the genius level. His brother Terry, however, told reporters in later interviews that after the fall and you know subsequent faceplant to the ground that Gary's personality changed pretty dramatically. Brotherly squabbles would now become violent exchanges, and Gary would become unreasonably angry over small irritations. Like, whenever he heard that goddamn yummy, yummy, yummy song, he would just fly into a rage. <sighs> After the head injury, Terry and Gary left the bar, I mean, Mom's house, and went to live with their dad. Gary's personality changes started getting him into trouble at school. He was aggressive, violent, and would start showing early signs of psychological issues. He wouldn't speak to classmates, and if he was pushed to do so, he would lash out and scream at them. You know, like a totally normal person. It finally got to the point between 14-year-old Gary's grades and disciplinary issues that Michael enrolled Gary in Staten Military Academy. All reports say that he actually did okay there. He stayed for about two years, but then he left for some reason and moved back in with good old Papa. At the age of 17, Gary dropped out of high school entirely and enrolled in the U.S. Army. Here, his instructor graded him excellent. I'm guessing, but I can't confirm he wasn't still pissing the bed. But he was denied for several assignment specialties, including military police. His assignment after boot camp was to the Medic Corps where he did well enough to be certified as a nurse, and he was assigned to a base on the Rhine River in Germany. That assignment, though, didn't last long. 
Because little Gary, well, he had a tummy ache and a brain full of broken shit, so after being enlisted for all 13 months, he was honorably discharged on a medical exemption. Somehow, I'm not totally sure why he was able to manipulate the system and qualified for 100% VA disability, meaning he was eligible to draw full disability for the rest of his life from the U.S. Army. My theory is they didn't even really do an exam to see, you know, where his psychological state was. It was just he was still peeing the bed so much that all the COs got together and decided to get private pissy pants out of there. Again, bedwetting is an issue that can last until your teens. It's a developmental thing. Sometimes it's a response to anxiety or trauma. It's normal and I'm not mocking it. I'm just mocking Gary because he is an irredeemable piece of shit. <laughs> After leaving the military in 1962, Gary spent time in and out of psychiatric centers. During his time out, he held a job as a nurse at a VA hospital until he was terminated from that position due to his truancy. And if nothing else convinces you that the VA may have some staffing issues, imagine a football-shaped head, pissed-off nurse, challenging you to throw down because you're unable to roll over for him to get your bedpan. Throughout all this, though... Gary had stayed really close to his brother Terry, who also had an honorable discharge and was likewise suffering from some mental illness issues. It's pretty common for kids who grew up in shitty households to stay really close, even if they have their own issues going on. All of that changed, however, after Gary was released from his VA job. He grew increasingly depressed and unstable, culminating in a brawl with his brother. And I can tell you as kids, my brother and I would kick the shit out of each other. But I have to think as a grown-ass man, fighting your brother, it had better be because he took your wife or your dog or your train. or And there better be some country music playing outside your trailer while you do it. In 1970, Gary's life took another unexpected turn. When old pickle liver mommy committed suicide by drinking muriatic chloride. Apparently it was because she was suffering from the effects of cancer. But there's a cynical part of me that has to believe that she just mixed it up. Or just sheer desperation for a drink, she went with the muriatic chloride. I had a family member that was so deep in alcoholism that they would get so desperate for a drink, they would go to a family member's house and ask for one. On one occasion, they did this, and the house they went to said, oh no, we're out, we're dry. So she asked to use their bathroom. While she was in there, she drank the aftershave, the perfume, and even the hand sanitizer. So, to me at least, I could see it either way. After his mom's suicide, Gary became even more isolated, more depressed, and more deeply mentally ill. So like a lot of people with severe depression, he turned to religion. Not by going to church or anything, but by making his own, because that seems easier. In 71, Gary founded the United Church of the Ministers of God. And of course, since he founded it, who better to be the religious authority than himself? Which is exactly what old football head did, by appointing himself bishop. Gary evangelized his church to the less fortunate and mentally delayed in the area. A number of his flock were illiterate, and he was able to convince many of them to invest the little bits of resources they had into the church, which he maintained heavy-handed singular control of. All the money that went into the church, Gary utilized. By investing in the stock market, which for some reason beyond my comprehension, Gary held a special fascination with, he'd use it to buy himself luxury items like a Rolls Royce, a Cadillac, and watches, 
And despite all of that, despite the fact he was a bishop on Sundays, he wasn't so pious the other six days of the week. He would bring home several women at a time and have a good old time. I mean, most of the women were from his flock, and a lot of them had intellectual disabilities, but damn, Bishop Gary liked to get down in a weird, uncomfortable way. Gary had a lot of encounters like this, sometimes one, but often multiple partners at a time. And it was with the church that Gary Heidnick learned that he really liked having control over people. Maybe a little too much. No, no. I think I'll go out on the limb and say, yeah, he liked control too much. In 1976, Gary purchased a house and began renting part of it to a black couple. The couple noticed their landlord often just being a fucking weirdo, looking in their windows, talking about the coming race war, you know, the average kind of conversations you have with your weird football-shaped-headed landlord. One day, the couple arrived home, and they had no power in their rented part of the house. So, the husband went to the cellar door to check the box, you know, like a boss. But the door was locked. So he went outside and found one of the basement windows open. So he slid inside and he found Gary standing in wait, holding a loaded handgun. Gary fired at his tenant, who just wanted his landlord not to be so goddamn weird, and luckily missed him, only grazing his face. The tenant bolted for the door, grabbed his wife, and they never went back. Gary was charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and carrying an unregistered weapon. See, these, these fucking liberals, they want to infringe on this violent, mentally ill, orgy-addicted bishop who's obsessed with the coming race war with the right to keep and bear arms with just a safeguard like registering. <sighs> Jesus. Next, they're going to be saying you can't kidnap your girlfriend's cognitively disabled sister with plans to impregnate her and create your own brood. Anyway, shortly after this, Gary kidnapped his girlfriend's cognitively disabled sister with plans to impregnate her and create his own brood. Maybe I should back up a sec. Old Piss Sheets Heidnick had a type. He liked him poor, dark-skinned, and mentally disabled. Most of the women he picked up that weren't sex workers were from a drop-in center for the areas cognitively disabled. Because he targeted the poverty-stricken, racially disenfranchised, mentally delayed population of Philadelphia, the police and press didn't exactly jump when one of them went missing or a crime was committed. This was definitely the case for his girlfriend, Anjanette Davidson. Anjanette was just his type. Dark-skinned, thin, and cognitively disabled. She would go on to mother Gary's first child. Which, wouldn't you guess, the creative streak continues. And they named him Gary Jr. I mean, there are other names. Christ. The mother has a beautiful name. And Jeanette, that is a dope name, but no, no, can't. you just got to go with Gary Jr. Gary Jr. was put into foster care immediately because Anne Jeanette had been deemed unfit to be a mother. This sent Gary into a fury. He said he was denied his right to a child. After Anne Jeanette recovered, Gary devised another, grosser, plain fucking evil, but not as evil he was get, maybe proto-evil plan. 
kidnapping Anjanette's even more disabled sister and using her as breeding stock. Gary and Anjanette signed out Anjanette's sister, Alberta, from an institution in Harrisburg for a day trip to visit family. Gary then brought the sisters back to his home, where they had dinner. And that evening, he told Anjanette that it was too late in the day to take Alberta back to the Institute, and Alberta could stay there that night, and he would run her home in the morning. He then drove Anjanette home and returned to his home with Alberta in tow. Details are sparse on what happened next. But after the employees of the institution Alberta lived at saw she hadn't returned, they went to Gary's to investigate. When they arrived, Gary explained she wasn't there, and even offered to let them check the place out for themselves. They left without finding Alberta, but they still didn't trust Gary. The next day, they returned with Philadelphia's finest. Gary was questioned while police searched the building, and in a narrow, dark hallway hidden by shadows and boxes, police found Alberta, terrified, in a small utility room. When Alberta saw the Institute's employees, she dived out of the room, sobbing and clinging to them. After a medical examination, it had been determined that Alberta had been raped and sodomized. Gary was arrested and charged with rape, kidnapping, unlawful imprisonment, and aggravated assault, along with a number of other charges. Many of these charges, though, were dropped when the DA decided that Alberta, because of her condition, couldn't be brought as a reliable witness. Gary was sentenced on the remaining charges to three to seven years, and he was released in 1983. From this point, it seems Gary had one mission. Children. He wanted a whole fucking horde of children. He wanted a warehouse of childs, a Costco pallet of screamy, sticky-handed, needy, walking Petri dishes. And since the state keeps taking everyone he makes, since he is owed it, he's going to get himself a harem of baby makers. First, he turned to a matchmaking service to find himself a Filipino wife. That's weird. That's the second Tom Waits reference in this episode. After two years of correspondence with Betty Distro, she arrived in 1985 after he proposed. And she realized real quick after marrying him that she had made a big oopsie. Gary beat, dominated, and humiliated his new wife. When Gary thought necessary, he'd beat Betty and make her stand in one spot with her hands behind her back for hours. He continued having orgies. Once being caught with three other women, he forced Betty to join in. Not long after this, with the help of the Filipino community in Philadelphia, she was able to escape Gary and return to her home in the Philippines. And it wasn't until about a year later when Gary got child support requests that he found out that Betty had been carrying his child. Again, Gary feeling like he was denied what he was owed decided that that was the last child that would ever be taken from him. Holy fucking shit, this guy. Like, goddamn, I'm not gonna lie here. Something I didn't talk about much was the fact that before he started the church, after the military and fired from the VA, he had attempted suicide over a dozen times. The suicide is not a joke. 
It's not a joking subject, generally. If you were experiencing that little monkey on your shoulder dragging you down to the swamp, please reach out to somebody. And if you know someone who's dealing with depression, reach out. Tell them that you give more than a shit about them. With that said, however, I kind of wish that he had pulled it off. It, it would have stopped a lot of people from suffering, and it would have stopped him from inflicting a lot of suffering on people. In this next phase, the first woman he picked up was Josephina. A single mom turning to sex work to provide for her kids, Gary picked her up for a 35 buck appointment and asked her to come to his house. Now, Josephina wasn't stupid. She knew it was safer to have a quickie in a car and move on. However, it was a chilly night and she needed that cash. So, against her better instincts, she agreed and got into Gary's Cadillac. Walking into his house, she noticed it was weird from the get-go. The floor had dozens of pennies epoxied down, and as they walked upstairs, she noticed fives and tens plastered to the walls. Which is just like a weird flex. Like, yeah, baby, I got money. Look at my walls. After completing their exchange, Josephina rolled over and reached to grab her pants. She felt Gary's hands grab hard around her throat, throttling her until she was nearly unconscious. He then let go, and she struggled a harsh, raspy gasp of cold air. He ordered her to stand with her hands behind her back, and half terrified, half stunned, did as she was ordered, as she felt the cold steel clicks of handcuffs snap around her wrists. Gary, holding the handcuffs, led the nude and terrified Josephine into the basement. The dimly lit room made even more ominous by a cutaway concrete floor with a pit dug in the middle. She stood frozen as he bolted a metal clasp around her leg. Muffler clamps that had a length of chain welded to them. He then locked the other end around a large steel pipe and then proceeded to beat and rape Josephina before finally going back upstairs. Now, Josephina was a fucking survivor, or possibly something else. Probably just a desperate person in the worst situation imaginable. But as soon as Gary was out of the room, she ran as far as her chain would let. She grabbed a pool cue that was in the basement, using it to push open a window, and tried to pull herself out, getting stuck about halfway through. She screamed at the top of her lungs to get help, but in the crime-ridden area Gary lived... The screams were only met with attracting Gary's attention, who came back down. He pulled Josephina back into the cellar, beat her, again raped her, and threw her into the pit. He placed a wood of plywood over the top with bags of soil to weigh it down to prevent her from moving it. This is hell, right? Like, this has to be what hell is. She was so close to being rescued, only to end up brutally raped and beaten and thrown into a pitch-black pit. Fucking shit, this guy. I'm standing more and more by what I said earlier, that I wished he had succeeded with what he tried to do right after the military. Just a couple months later, Gary persuaded Sandra Lindsay to join him on a trip to Atlantic City. He handed her $100 and drove her to a Sears to pick up some new clothes for the trip. Atlantic City, however, was not their destination. 
Because like Josephina before, they went to Gary's house. Sandra was beaten, raped, and eventually chained next to Josephina in the basement. Gary introduced Lindsay as if she was an old friend, and after chaining her to the pipe, he began digging the pit larger and deeper. Sandra's family knew something wasn't right when she didn't come home that night. And after asking around to some of her friends, Gary Heidnick's name came up as Bishop Gary. Word got back to Gary about Sandra's family trying to find her. And I mean, yeah, your mentally handicapped family member goes missing. People are going to look for you. Not wanting a repeat of what happened with Alberta, Gary brought Sandra a piece of paper and a pen and dictated a letter for Sandra to write saying, yep, I'm fine, I'll call soon. He then drove to New York to drop the letter in a mailbox to throw the trail. When Sandra's mom got the letter, she called the detectives. When they found out about the letter, they said, yep, she just ran off. And I was wondering in this research, how? Like, how the hell, when his name came up, was it not already linked to the disappearance of a black, cognitively disabled woman? Well, it comes down to two factors. Laziness and the misspelling by a witness. When Football Head's name first came up, the witness actually misspelled it. So when police entered it into the records, there weren't any hits, and they didn't really dig any further. At this point, he had to feel like everything was coming up sevens, so Gary kept adding to his harem. In short order, he added Lindsay, Deborah, and Jacqueline, using the same methods. Get them to the house, beat, rape, and chain them. He kept the women starved, beating them with a shovel handle, repeatedly raping them, torturing them with increasingly sadistic and absurd methods. This fucking monster had some truly disgusting ways to keep his harem in check. Once, one of the women found a length of pipe buried in the ground. So a few of them devised a plan to knock Gary with the pipe and pounce on him. Needless to say, it didn't work. And as punishment, Gary took a screwdriver and jammed it in the ear of each woman to rupture the eardrums, reasoning that if they couldn't hear each other, they couldn't plot. Fuck this guy. Seriously. Gah. Okay, I think I should circle back to something I said earlier about Josephina. Josephina realized early on that compliance meant survival. I'm not going to justify anything she did, but I am going to say I think I get it. You are living in hell. Nothing but terror, fear, torture. If you learn how to make that torture slightly less worse, I don't know if I could say I wouldn't do any different, if I'm being honest with myself. I mean, luckily, I'm a big 36-year-old cis white dude, not exactly the target of a sexual sadist, so it's hard to, you know, it's not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison here. Gary had other ways of keeping control over these women. He would keep them at each other's throats with special treatments. Chinese food, a Coca-Cola, or picking the music that blared to cover up any of the screaming in the basement. Josephina, over time, earned Gary's trust. Like I said, she learned early on that compliance meant survival. So after the pipe incident, Josephina had revealed that Sandra was the one that kind of came up with the plan. Gary chained Sandra to a pipe high on the ceiling, 
leaving her for days. Eventually, one of the women started screaming, and they realized that the weak Sandra, after enduring so much abuse, had fallen limp. Gary found Sandra dead, and he took her down with all the emotion of pulling down some old ceiling insulation. Here he decided he needed to carefully dispose of her. And I really hope you're ready for this, because... Gary, using an electric saw, dismembered and bisected Sandra. Much of the meat he chopped up and fed to his dogs, possibly to the other victims. He then took bones and larger sections, and in an attempt to cremate them, put them in his oven. Sandra's skull, however, he put into a pot and boiled. The acrid, scorched, burnt smell of Sandra's body was so intense, the women in the basement gagged and vomited. Even the neighbors, who have to be the winners of least nosy neighbors ever, were so disturbed by the horrid aroma that they reported it to the police. When two officers arrived to investigate, they immediately thought that there was a corpse in the house. The senior officer began calling a code. When Gary answered the door, he introduced himself as Bishop Gary and explained the smell away as him burning his roast. The officer spoke to Gary for a few who seemed calm, coherent, if not just a little irritated. And the police, satisfied with Gary's explanation, left without further incident. And he went back in to finish his work. Now, reports differ on what happened next. It's speculated that Gary served some of the flesh to his victims chained in the basement, but I haven't been able to verify that through, you know, the research. I could honestly see him doing it just out of sheer evil cruelty because that's kind of what this dude's M.O. is. Gary began to find more sadistic ways to torture the women. About a month after Sandra's death, Gary filled a pit with water and forced Deborah Dudley to sit in the cold, dark, watery pit. Then, using a disconnected electrical wire from the fuse box, he lowered in the ground and possibly after an unbearable amount of time, dropped in the live electrical wire and went upstairs. Gary heard screaming shortly after and he checked and found the women screaming and sobbing that Deborah was dead. Her lifeless body floated face down the water with her head submerged. Gary once again had gone far too far with his cruelty, and he had killed another one of his harem. It left Gary with another dilemma. He didn't want a repeat of what happened with Sandra's body attracting law enforcement. So, with the help of Josephina, he loaded Deborah's body wrapped in a piece of carpet into the car and dumped her body 40 miles away in the woods. In Gary's bruised, schizophrenic, sadistic, and broken brain, this made Josephina no longer a kidnap victim, but an active participant. He made Josephina write out a confession to helping Gary, and he told her if she ever went to the police, she'd go to jail too. That's a threat? I mean... Is that really a threat? Oh, you mean I'll go to jail? A place where I'll get meals, a shower, 
not be consistently beaten and raped on a regular occasion while being chained to a pipe while you torture, beat, and rape people right next to me? Um, yeah, can I go to jail? I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll take jail, please. Is that actually not? Oh, it's not. Oh, oh, I'm uh, into the bit. Okay. With this in his back pocket, Gary started granting Josephina more privileges. She was no longer confined to the basement, and Gary even let her go outside to get the mail outside of the house. He began to treat Josephina not like a woman he had kidnapped and spent months raping and sadistically torturing, but as his girlfriend. One day, Josephina asked if she can go visit her family, and Gary was hesitant. I mean, you're not sure if you should let the woman you kidnapped in your house, you know, beat, rape, tortured. You're, you're not sure if you should let her go for an afternoon? Oh, I couldn't begin to fathom why, you stupid son. He eventually agreed and brought Josephina to a gas station, setting up a plan to pick her up at midnight. Josephina walked until she was out of sight and sprinted to a nearby house where a former boyfriend lived. With his help, they contacted law enforcement, and when Gary came to pick up Josephina, he was arrested while over at his house. Other officers broke down Gary's door to rescue the remaining women. He was charged with dozens of crimes that made him eligible for execution. Gary's defense attorney, however, filed a motion for incompetence to even stand trial. Due to a long history of mental illness, they were trying to argue not guilty by reason of insanity. The defense brought in psychiatric experts to attest that Gary was definitely loose upstairs, but prosecutors had their own. The state argued that, yeah, Gary was fucking crazy, but he didn't fit the McNaughton rule. Which, in lamest terms, or at least as I understand it, means that if you are still cognizant of your actions, then you are still legally liable for them. Since Gary showed specific and intentional cover-ups, like driving to New York with a letter meant to throw the trail, disposal of a body in the most surreptitious way possible, it showed a definite awareness of his ability to discern right from wrong. Gary, no surprise, was found guilty, and he was sentenced to death. Gary attempted to waive his right to automatic appeals, but because of his psychiatric condition, it was denied. In 1999, Gary was finally relocated to a deep section of hell by the state of Pennsylvania, making him the last person the state executed, which it's a good pick. I mean, if you're going to execute somebody, it's a good pick. So that's Gary Heidnick's story. What kind of legacy and impact did he have? Well, Josefina Rivera, the first woman he added to his harem, went on to write her story in the book Cellar Girl. Josefina isn't viewed, however, by everyone as a complete victim. According to Jacqueline Askins in an Oxygen Network special, she accused Josefina as a cohort. She claimed Josefina would snitch on the other victims and would even participate in the beatings. Josefina denies this, but at the end of the day, the only people who are going to truly understand what happened there in that god-awful place are the women who survived, so I, I can't give you a definitive answer there. Jacqueline Askins herself has been interviewed as recently as 2017. 
She told reporters that she's still unable to enter a basement. She has a persistent fear of the dark. And she has daily struggles with PTSD, anxiety, and paranoia. And has to maintain a regiment of about seven daily psychiatric medications. Gary's defense attorney, Charles Chuck Peruto, had only been practicing law for about eight years. But he used the notoriety in this case to add to his legal profile in the Philadelphia legal community. He's still practicing in Philadelphia, and in 2021, he ran for district attorney, but he ended up losing to the incumbent. Gary's church that he incorporated filed for bankruptcy in 1988, after Gary was convicted. However, the defense attorney, Charles Baruto, had attempted to unfreeze the assets of the church to the tune of about half a million dollars. I'm sure for totally altruistic reasons. His children, Betty Distro, and Jeanette, and Alberta have pretty much faded into obscurity, which, I mean, who can blame any of them? Gary Heidnick is in that list of people that have fucked up so many lives. A few books have been written about this whole series of events, including the book Seller of Horror by Dan Englade which was the inspiration for me to do Gary Heidnick. I've always held a fascination with serial killers, serial crime, to the point of concern, I'm sure, for some, but I've always looked at them with the curiosity the same way I look at ancient cultures or aliens, something so foreign and inexplicable that adding in a desire to understand as much of this world as possible has led me to some dark people over the years. If you made it this far, I want to thank you so damn much for checking this out. Big shout out to Jennifer for inspiring me to try this. The Don't Believe Me crew. You can follow me on Instagram for some of my metal art and random stuff at Desert Valley Forge. And feel free to give a like, give five stars, do all that stuff. That'll really help me out. And until next time, remember, an FBI cavity search does not replace a medical prostate exam. See you around, and until next time.